0: Welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper for Wednesday, March the 8th, and I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. Headline, Sioux City Council Approves Nearly a Quarter of a Million Dollar Grant Application for an Armored Rescue Vehicle, and this article was written by reporter Dolly Butts. The Sioux City Police Department received City Council approval on Monday to submit an application for a $240,000 homeland security grant, which would fund the purchase of an armored rescue vehicle for SWAT operations. Police Chief Rex Mueller told the council the Lenco G3 Bearcat armored rescue vehicle would replace the surplus military truck that the department currently has. He said the Lenco G3 Bearcat is purpose-built by a company for law enforcement use. Nothing that we have is bulletproof. We don't have armored doors on our squad cars. We have nothing to stop bullets, Mueller said. So in the instances of barricaded gunmen or, God forbid, we ever have an active shooter in this town, we would need a resource that would allow us to get people out of harm's way. Councilmember Alex Waters, though, expressed his concerns over how the use and purchase of such vehicles, as well as the discussions surrounding them, are very militaristic. I'm hearing rumors and discussions about that, he said. Obviously, in that type of a situation, you want a vehicle that can withstand fire, which is exactly why it would be built with militaristic capability. Mueller said the department's currently a current vehicle, a 6x6 MRAP, mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicle, has only been deployed once or twice this year. He said the armored rescue vehicle would not be a military vehicle. That's part of the reason for seeking this, he said. What we have is a military vehicle. It's simply a convoy truck. But it is not well-suited. It's extremely heavy and it wasn't built for what we're using it for, Mueller said of the NRAP, which the department got free from the federal government and has been using it for about eight years. Waters asked if there would be ongoing costs associated with the armored rescue vehicle and Mueller said it would require preventive maintenance on a regular basis every year. Most of these vehicles have a commercial grade chassis and the manufacturer then converts that to what they need it for, Mueller said. It wouldn't be any more probably troublesome or costly than the vehicle that we have serving that function right now. As the biggest law enforcement agency in the area, Mueller said the department sees a lot of benefit to loaning such a vehicle when available to other agencies. But he cautioned that there is no guarantee the department will receive the grant. Part of any piece of equipment that we have is that we loan that to nearby agencies in the event of things happening, the chief said. When South Sioux City was dealing with the grain bin that was about to fall over, we loaned them equipment. We loaned them our mobile command. What the biggest agency in the area should do is support our fellow law enforcement agencies in the area. If Sioux City were to receive this grant, Mueller said the Lenco G3 Bearcat would be the only vehicle in the department's fleet that would be armored. He said the MRAP would be released back to the federal government or another agency via an agreement through the federal government. We were able to get it, We should switch it for the other one, he said. In addition to the $240,000 grant, $50,000 in state asset forfeiture funds would be used to complete the purchase of the armored rescue vehicle. And again, this was the latest from this past Monday's Sioux City Council meeting. And the headline for this next article, written by reporter Dolly Butts, City Council votes to modify bike facility study for an upcoming trail. The Sioux City Council on Monday night, by voting in favor of its consent agenda, approved a resolution to amend the city's bike facility study to include a trail over the Gordon Drive Viaduct. The council approved the bike facility study back on August 8. However, city staffers prefer the single multi-use trail facility over sidewalk on the viaduct, which is heavily used by pedestrians and cyclists as well. The Iowa Department of Transportation wants to see an updated bike pedestrian plan from the city to determine the appropriate recommendation and accommodation as both the city and the the Department of Transportation have been working together on the planned reconstruction of the viaduct. The 3,970-foot-long viaduct was built in 1937. It was improved in 1963 and again in 1966, but the viaduct is currently deteriorating. Before the vote, Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore asked Senior Planner Chris Madsen to clarify the amendment, and Madsen told Moore the original proposal from the Iowa Department of Transportation is two five-foot sidewalks on either side of the viaduct. This proposal and the city's recommendation would be one trail, ideally on the south side, that would be found would be about fifteen feet wide. Madsen said. City staff and active transportation advisory committee uh, groups created the amendment to the bike facility study to include a trail on the Gordon Drive Viaduct. A trail connection on Cunningham Drive would connect to the riverfront and Chautauqua trails. Last month, the city's active transportation advisory committee voted to recommend approval of this amendment. The trail will allow for the ease of access for Winter maintenance and will accommodate a better bicycle connection along Gordon Drive in Sioux City. Headline for this next article Southern Hills Mall is Having a Birthday. And this article was written by reporter Mason Doctor. The Southern Hills Mall on Sunday marked its 43rd year in business. The mall at forty four hundred Sergeant Road, opened to Great Fanfare on march the fifth, nineteen eighty, and at its opening the twenty-one million dollar mall, housed more than seventy-five outlets, including restaurants at the food court. Shoppers in Sioux City, like most cities in the United States that didn't have a shopping mall in the nineteen seventies, had been itching for one for years by the time construction began on the southern hills mall local leaders for a while opposed the mall fearing that it might damage the downtown's fragile retail trade the city's downtown was still the core of retail trade at that time but as was the case in other communities going downtown for shopping came to be seen as dated and unfashionable and by the late 1970s, Sioux City shoppers were reportedly in the habit of driving to the established shopping malls of Omaha and Sioux Falls. When it opened, the Southern Hills Mall attracted many, if not most, of the city's established downtown stores, including Sears, Yonkers, and Fantless Women's Store. Some retailers, including Yonkers, maintained a downtown location in addition to the mall location, while other stores didn't maintain both. Simon Property Group purchased the mall in January of 2012. And Ohio-based Washington Prime Group, a Simon Property Group spin-off company, owns and operates the mall today. Only a handful of the mall's original tenants remain among them, Helzberg and Riddle's Jewelry Stores, Claire's Ear Piercing Boutique, G&C, the Spencer Gifts Store, and the Orange Julius in the Food Court. The movie theater is still there at the mall, although it operates under different ownership and has many more screens today than it did when it opened. None of the mall's original anchor stores of 1980 remains. Yonkers closed in 2018, Sears closed in 2019. The Shields and J.C. Penney stores had not yet set up shop in their present locations at the time of the mall opening. But, and somewhat unexpectedly, the mall did manage to find permanent tenants for both the Yonkers and the Sears Anchors. The Yonkers is currently in the process of becoming an Ashley Furniture Store on the upper level and a Furniture Mart on the lower level. The Sears space, in the meantime, has now become a Tilt Studio Family Fun Center. In the headline for this next article, Mother believes that the body found in a Muscatine Park was her son. And this story was written by reporter David Hotel. As she struggles to find some good that can come out of the last six months, Julie Bumeyer thanks all of her friends of her son Trevor Wixom, twenty one, who had reached out to show support or just share a memory. Bumeyer said the police are pretty sure they found Wixom at Discovery Park on Friday. At about 10.45 in the morning, police officers were called to the park to reports of a body found inside the park. Police have not yet released the identity of the subject. Bumeyer said the body, found lying under an oak tree about 100 yards off the trail, has been taken to the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics for a check of dental records prior to an autopsy. No obvious injury was reported, nor were drugs or alcohol found with the subject. She also said that Wixom's coat, identification, and cell phone had been found with the body. Discovery Park had been one of Wixom's favorite places, she said, and he used to go to the park to feed the owls. I think of all the times I walked the dog through the park and think of how close I was to him. Bumeyer said. Wixom had been reported missing on October the 9th of 2022. Bumeyer and Wixom's father, Duane Wixom, had been searching ever since. Especially concerning was that Wixom had been born with a heart defect and was reliant on medication. "'I'm glad we found Trevor and can make peace for Trevor. But there are still questions I want answered,' she said." And I don't know if I will get all of those answers. She hopes to discover what happened between when he was last seen at a convenience store in downtown Muscatine until he wound up in the park. As the shock that the search for her son is almost over is sinking in, Buhmeyer said she is taking comfort in finding strength in having seen six months of the Muscatine community come together to help find Trevor Due to his heart defect keeping him from playing many contact sports, Wixom had gotten involved with music at a young age. Bumeyer said he was the kind of a musician who could play a song after hearing it only once. She also recalls many times when Wixom would stand and wait for people to come to a door so he could hold it open for them. Several people had said they knew Wixom because he had helped them do yard work. Wixom also loved animals and nature, and he had recently become a vegetarian. I would describe Trevor as a kind person, Bumeyer said. He was trusting of people, maybe even some people he shouldn't have been trusting, to. He didn't see race, gender, whether they were rich or poor. He would hang out with the people at the homeless shelter and would try to encourage people. Over the weekend, Bumeyer received a call from a man that Wixom had known when he was staying at the local homeless shelter, telling her that Wixom rendered aid to him when he ran his bike into a utility pole. Because of this, Wixom earned the nickname, Our First Responder. I still can't believe he is gone, Bumeyer said. A lot has happened in my life since I was 21, and still had a lot to do and a lot to give the world. And I feel that Trevor is not just my loss, it is everyone's loss. A private family service is being planned for Wixom in his hometown of Burlington, Bumeier said, as has been approached about having a candlelit vigil along the riverfront, and the journal will report the details of These, when they become available, she also hopes to adopt a tree in Discovery Park in Wixom's honor. Bumeyer commented that right after Wixom had gone missing, both she and her father had received uh, several fake text messages giving incorrect information about his whereabouts. And next, on the Sioux City Journal newspaper for March the 8th, the latest Woodbury County Court report, as compiled and uh, reported on by reporter Nick Hytrack. Before Judge Todd Deck, Syracuse Alois, 21, of Sioux City, third degree burglary, second offense, sentence on March, to sec- March 2nd, deferred judgment, two years probation. Sherian Alicia Blunt, four, 40 years old, of Sioux City, Sec, Second-degree fraudulent practice, sentence March 2nd, deferred judgment, and two years probation in that case. Dexter James Lloyd Nowhere, 33, of Sergeant Bluff, operating without owner's consent. Sentenced February 27th to 20 days in jail. Before Judge Jeffrey Neary, DeWinka Joelle Walker, 29, of Sioux City. Possession with intent to deliver a controlled substance. Sentence February 27th to 10 years prison suspended and 2 years probation. Christian Javier Tenejero, 19, of Sioux City. Felon in possession of a firearm. Sentence February 27th, deferred judgment and 2 years probation. Casey Lee Mammon. 41, of Correctionville, Iowa, second-degree theft, sentence on February 27th, deferred judgment, two years probation. Joshua Edgar Parker, 46, of Sioux City, domestic abuse assault, sentence on February 28th, deferred judgment, two years probation. Stephen Gene Lundgren, 38, of Sioux City, Possession with intent to deliver a controlled substance. Sentence on March the 1st to 10 years in prison. Isaac M. Schlinger, 41, of Washtaw, Iowa. Second degree burglary. Sentence March the 1st to 10 years in prison and 3 years probation. Timothy Brian Bailey, 43, of James, Iowa. Second degree theft. First degree theft, driving while license barred, sentence on March the first to ten years in prison suspended and three years probation. And Leslie John Cornier, thirty two of Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, sentence on March second, five years prison suspended, and two years probation headline nebraska legislature's floor action brought to a screeching halt by one lawmaker and this article was written by reporter aaron banner of the world herald bureau action on the floor of the nebraska state legislature has slowed to a crawl over the past six days of the session in large part due to the efforts of one Omaha lawmaker who is working to stall bills that she claims legislate hate. State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh has pledged to take up as much time as she can during floor debate to protest Legislative Bill 574. The bill would ban gender-altering care to individuals under the age of 19. Since she started her quest on February 23rd, the legislature has advanced only three bills on the floor. What I'm, doing, what I'm going to do is to slow it down to a screeching halt, Kavanaugh said, because we can do better. Her strategy has spurred harsh criticism from her Republican opponents who call her a bully and a hypocrite. Meanwhile, her Democratic allies have largely praised her efforts, even though it could prevent some of their priorities from passing. The Nebraska legislature contains 32 Republicans and 17 Democrats. And because it takes 33 votes to end a filibuster, some have questioned whether Republicans have enough of a majority to pass bills on some controversial topics where they have fallen short in previous sessions, including abortion restrictions and expanded access to guns. Kavanaugh's plan has changed that question from whether there is enough votes to pass such measures as whether there is enough time. In the Nebraska State Legislature, when it comes to killing bad legislation, time is on our side. And that is a quote from Senator Megan Hunt of Omaha, one of Kavanaugh's supporters. She said that in a tweet last week. Only 52 days remain in the 90-day session, with 812 bills introduced, plus dozens of resolutions. And because it's the first session of a biennium, lawmakers are, ta- or are tasked with passing a budget by day 80, and they also have to pass legislation to fill a ballot initiative that passed last year requiring that voters present photo identification before they cast a ballot. Kavanaugh's filibuster pledge garnered swift national attention, which she said is an indication that her issue resonates with many people all across the United States. Kavanaugh was interviewed by MSNBC's Rachel Maddow. She was also featured in The Hill, Insider, and Esquire. Under the legislative rules, opponents are allowed to filibuster most bills, for up to eight hours in the first round of debate and then four hours in the second round and two hours in the final round. This was the case for one of the three bills that was advanced last week, LB 77, which would allow Nebraskans 21 and older to carry concealed firearms without a permit. That bill cleared the first round of debate on Friday, making it through eight hours of debate that spanned three days. The two other bills that advanced were smaller appropriations bills that did not require so much debate. That's according to Speaker of the Legislature, John Arch. Kavanaugh did say that she could be persuaded to take less time if the Nebraska legislature chooses to debate policies that she considers more important to the state but is still inclined to slow the process down. In the meantime, some Republicans have been questioning whether Kavanaugh has the grit to stick with their effort. Senator Steve Erdman of Bayard called Kavanaugh a bully last week and said he was willing to keep the debate going until midnight in order to move the process forward. We'll just have to see how much stamina Senator Michaela Kavanaugh has, Erdman said. And in summation to that end, Kavanaugh laughed and said, If I can survive having three babies, I'll be fine. Headline for this next news story, Iowa lawmakers say access to abortion is hanging on by thread. And this article was written by reporter Tom Barton Lee of the Gazette's Des Moines Bureau. Among the bills that did not survive Friday's legislative funnel deadline were those dealing with abortion, including proposals to ban nearly all abortions and the use of abortion pills in Iowa. The bills show an eagerness by rank-and-file Republicans to ban abortion following the United States Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade in June of 2022, removing the federal fight to an abortion and sending the issue back to the states. But some Republican leaders have said they want to wait. For now on the outcome of an, of an Iowa Supreme Court ruling that could clear the way to ban abortions in Iowa after six weeks into a pregnancy. As it stands now, abortion remains legal in Iowa up to 20 weeks, but Iowa's legal landscape remains unsettled when it comes to abortion restrictions. Abortion rights advocates are quick to warn that abortion access in the state of Iowa is, quote, hanging on by a thread, and that GOP leaders have ways to revive legislation later in the session if they want to impose restrictions on abortions. Walgreens recently also announced that it will not distribute abortion pills in states, including Iowa, where Republican attorneys general have threatened legal action if the company began distributing the drugs, which have become the nation's most popular method for ending a pregnancy. For now, even though Republicans in Iowa cannot agree on how or when to ban abortion, their intent to outlaw abortion is crystal clear. We stand with Iowans and are not backing down. Because people, and not politicians or judges, should control their bodies and their future. Headline for this next article, A Jail Inmate Has Filed a Lawsuit Against the sheriff, for violations of rights, and this article was written by reporter Nick Hytrek. A Whiting, Iowa man who is currently in prison for a fatal shooting has sued Woodbury County Sheriff Chad Sheehan and several jail staff members saying that officers allowed him to be assaulted by other inmates while he was being held in the Woodbury County Jail. Marvin Hildreth Jr. also alleges in the federal lawsuit that officers retaliated against him for filing complaints about his treatment, denied him visits with pastors, and illegally searched his mail. The jail officer's actions led him to fear for his safety, and he signed a plea agreement so that he could leave the jail sooner rather than remain there and stand trial, violating his right to a fair trial, Hildreth said. The lawsuit says he's seeking $1.5 million in punitive damages and $1,262 to reimburse him for medical costs from the assault. Hildreth filed the lawsuit himself on Monday in United States District Court and is not currently represented by a lawyer. Sheehan said that he has not yet seen the lawsuit and has no comment on it. Hildreth 22 years old is serving a 20-year prison sentence after pleading guilty in Woodbury County District Court in May to voluntary manslaughter and going on with intent for the May 31, 2021 shooting death of Russell Moore at a Luton, Iowa home and intimidation with a dangerous weapon also and looting in an unrelated Monoma County case. He alleges that in the lawsuit on July 22, 2021, after he was put in his cell and after his cell was locked down for the night, he heard his door buzz to unlock and two inmates entered his cell and assaulted him with a toilet plunger, causing bruising to his face and a cracked tooth. Hildreth said two jail officers watched the assault. And after filing a complaint with the Iowa Office of Ombudsman, Hildreth then said that Captain Todd Harlow called the unlocking of Hildreth's cell a mistake. Harlow, who oversees the jail, and at least seven other jail staff members are named as defendants in the lawsuit. Hildreth says he filed religious discrimination complaints with the Ombudsman Office about staff denying his visits with a pastor and withholding delivery of a religious book. He said the complaints were substantiated by the ombudsman office, but led to harassment from jail officers who illegally opened his correspondence with the office and read the complaints. State administrative rules state that correspondence with the ombudsman is privileged and can only be opened by the inmate or in the presence of the inmate. Bert Dahmer, senior deputy ombudsman, said he wouldn't deny any of Hildreth's references to the complaints, but said they are confidential and he is prohibited from discussing any details, findings, or discussions. And the headline for this next story, Ferenc opposes $4.2 million settlement in a racism lawsuit. And this article was written by a reporter for the Des Moines Gazette, Vanessa Miller Lee. The State Appeal Board on Monday okayed paying $4.2 million to settle a racial discrimination lawsuit brought by former Hawkeye football players against the University of Iowa, despite opposition from the state auditor and from Iowa's coaches. The three-member board's two-to-one vote to pay the settlement aligned with a recommendation from the Iowa Attorney General that $2 million of the total come from the state's general revenue fund. But it went against U of I football coaches' wishes. That's according to a statement from U of I's head football coach, Kirk Ferentz. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated March the 8th, on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Joseph C.P. Alvarez, age 91, of Fordyce, died on Thursday, March 2nd, at the Norfolk Veterans Home in Norfolk, Nebraska. Arrangements are under, under the direction of the Wentz Funeral Home in Hardington. Joseph Cruz Paul was born on September 14th, 1931, in Sioux City to Benjamin and Sylvia Padilla Alvarez. He grew up in Sioux City and went to St. Joseph grade school in Sioux City and graduated from Trinity High School in Sioux City. Joseph had a career in the U.S. Air Force, serving his country from September 21, 1950 to February 28, 1971, working as a computer system specialist joe attend retired from the air force and then went to omaha and attended the university of nebraska for four years joseph is survived by two sisters mary Weebelouse of fordice and ramona voigt of lenexa kansas many nieces and nephews and cousins and adopted son christopher alvarez of england he was preceded in death by his wife, Heather, parents, Benjamin, and Sylvia Alvarez, two brothers, Trino and Jesse Alvarez, niece, Francine Wolfe, nephew, John Wiebelhaus, brothers-in-law, Daniel Wiebelhaus and Larry Voigt, and sister-in-law, Shirley Alvarez. Tracy l cox 61 of sioux city died on thursday march 2nd private graveside services will be held at a later date arrangements are with meyer brothers colonial chapel in sioux city iowa james e jim colinane of hinton iowa 71 years old died on monday february the 27th Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City, Iowa, is in charge of arrangements. Dietrich Dieter Hanf of Lawton, Iowa, 83 years old, died peacefully after a long battle with dementia on Thursday, March 2, 2023. A private family celebration of life will be held at a later date. Road Funeral Home of Kingsley, is in charge of arrangements. He was born June 17, in 1939, in Kleinitz, East Germany, to Dr. Franz and Elizabeth Zepke-Hampf. As a young boy, his family escaped through the Berlin Wall with only a suitcase for their entire belongings. Dieter was a superior soccer player and a member of the national German youth team, was mechanically gifted, and worked as an apprentice in the Mercedes factories there. He dreamed of a better life and immigrated to the United States at the age of 18, coming through Ellis Island. He loved wild and domesticated animals, especially his German shepherds, Duchess and Shirley, and his shop cats, Fritz, Fritz Lean, and Hershey Leanne. He enjoyed the good things of his fatherland, like fast cars, German food and drink, and polka music. He is survived by his wife, Janet Doral Hampf, children David, Mike, Butch, and Elisa, grandchildren and siblings, Hildegard, Klaus, and twin brother Akim. memorials may be made to charities of choice in Dieter's name. Bernita May Kirby, 92, of Sioux City, died on Saturday, February the 25th. The services will be held on April the 20th at 1 o'clock in the afternoon at the United Lutheran Church, 315 Hamilton Boulevard in Sioux City. Visitation one hour prior to service time at the church and the arrangements are with Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Deidre Ann D. Lennon, 81 years old, of Sioux City, passed away on March 2nd. The family is deeply saddened and shocked by her sudden death. She was born in Pierre, South Dakota, to Gail and Genevieve Fish on January 30th, 1942. She grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, with her younger siblings, one brother, and two sisters as well. She was united in marriage to Robert Bob Lennon on June 5, 1965 in Sioux Falls. The two raised their family in Sioux City. She was a devoted mother and grandmother and always looked forward to visiting her grandkids. She is survived by her loving husband, Bob, children Patrick Jinky Lennon of Tempe, Arizona, and Kim and Zane Lennon of Gillette, Wyoming, two grandchildren, Cameron and Channing Lennon, two sisters, Ronette Fish and Shelley Leither, and beloved cousins, nieces, nephews, and many, many dear friends. Dee was preceded in death by her parents, her brother, Anthony Fish her aunt, Henrietta Bent, and granddaughter, Caitlin Lemon. Dean Avery Nelson of Anawa, Iowa, 88, died on Thursday, March 2, 2023. Gosseler Funeral Home and Monuments in Anawa, Iowa is in charge of arrangements. Linda Sue Dunn-Patterson, 76 years old, of Marcus, Passed away on Wednesday, March 1st, at the Happy Siesta Care Center in Remsen, Iowa. Linda Sue Dunn was born on November 12, 1946, in Marcus, the daughter of Cecil and Elvira Smith Dunn. She graduated from Marcus High School in 1964. After being married for a brief time, Linda was involved in a serious car accident. She spent three months in a coma and later months of rehabilitation, learning to walk, talk, and write. And after 11 months, she was released from rehab and resided with her parents in Marcus. Once her parents passed, she was able to live alone at home until 2016 with the help of relatives and neighbors. Health issues then required her to move to the Happy Siesta Care Center in Remsen. Linda enjoyed playing Scrabble, crossword puzzles, and other word games. Knitting was another hobby. She made several afghans that she gifted to others. Each was a different pattern, and she continued to challenge herself with more complex patterns. She is survived by her sister and her husband, Vicky and Bob Weber of Port Charlotte, Florida. Uncle Ab Smith of Marcus and several cousins. Linda was preceded in death by her parents, Cecil and Olvera Dunn. And now turning to the opinion page of the March 8th, or March 8th Sioux City Journal, the headline for this first piece, Our Opinion, Don't Play Political Games with I was Youth. This article was written by the editorial board of the newspaper. We're getting a mixed message from the Iowa State Legislature. On one hand, its members say that teens aren't responsible enough to read certain books. But on the other hand, they think it's fine if they work light assembly jobs. If they're so fragile they need parents to sign off on to kill a mockingbird, they certainly shouldn't be working at a bar where they could serve alcoholic drinks to people. This disconnect is unreal and is largely the result of an agenda that has nothing to do with so called parental rights and everything to do with lawmakers trying to justify their own uninformed beliefs. Routinely, We hear from Iowans who say they tried to talk to their legislators about issues, most recently those involving LGBTQ teens, and those elected officials did not want to listen or even consider another view. Instead of being representatives for all, they become speakers for a few. You don't need to comb the journal's archives to find many examples of politicians finding common ground. It does happen a lot. Republicans and Democrats do get along and pass laws. Key legislation resulted from parties hashing over ideas and coming up with solutions that had bipartisan support. Even 10 years ago, you could see that give and take at play. But now, there seems to be a wall that divides the state's two parties. Whoever is in control can push and pass legislation that has nothing to do with the economy or the well-being of the state's residents. It's a, quote, when we get in power agenda that doesn't even consider consensus. Where where does this lead? Down a never-ending spiral. And if enough Iowans are dissatisfied with the legislation, they'll vote those out who forced it. And the new lawmakers will then introduce bills to change things back. What gets accomplished? Nothing. Using the state's children in a game of political football is one of the worst ideas that we've seen yet. And again, that was written by the editorial staff of the Sioux City Journal newspaper. And the headline for this next piece from the opinion page, this is a letter to the editor with the headline, Why are seniors paying the same for garbage pickup as those with families? Please, can anybody tell me why senior citizens are paying the same for garbage pickup for people with families? I have only one dumpster in the winter and I set it out one time in three weeks. Seems I'm being treated unfairly, as I'm sure other seniors are, too. And that letter to the editor was written by Anna Barnes of Sioux City. And Here's another letter to the editor. Headline. A couple of questions come to mind with the request of Police Chief Mueller. In reading the February 22nd edition of the Sioux City Journal... I came upon a story regarding the request of Police Chief Rex Mueller for the hiring of four additional police officers. Two questions come to mind. One, how is it that the police department is still limited to 127 officers? And two, how is it that Sioux City still has Bob Scott on the city council? Just looking at his remarks to the police chief in regard to the request of four officers and Scott offering two, when his hypocritical reasoning was that you'd need at least six to redraw districts, maybe Scott has been in the position of power for too long, that he still sees it as an opportunity to disparage rather than offer intelligent input on an issue. The last time I had seen, other than doing a citizen's academy, Bob Scott has no law enforcement experience. Perhaps he would do better sticking to his tax business. You can do better, Sioux City. And that letter to the editor was written by Mark Wyant of Marshalltown, Iowa. And continuing with readings From the opinion page of the Sioux City Journal, here is Dan Lee's regular column with the headline, Bipartisan Solution to Address Social Security Now Less Likely. In his State of the Union address, President Joe Biden delivered a broadside against some Republicans who have raised the possibility of reducing Social Security and Medicare benefits. Senator Rick Scott of Florida, who proposed a sunset law would require all federal programs to be reevaluated every five years, that was a key Republican in the crosshairs. I believe Senator Scott's sunset law proposal is sheer nonsense, at least with respect to Social Security and Medicare. Suppose, for example, that John Deere and Company adopted a policy of re-evaluating retirees' pensions every five years prior to making a decision as to whether they should continue to be funded. That would be appalling. There is no way that Deere and Company, a company with high ethical standards, would do that. Well, neither should the federal government or any level of government. Senator Scott has backed off from his controversial proposal and now says that Social Security and Medicare should be exempted from his sunset proposal. The damage, however, has been done. And when President Joe Biden delivered a scathing broadside against Senator Scott's proposal, he made a bad situation worth by politicizing Social Security and Medicare. While that may be politically expedient, it makes it far more difficult to address the funding problems related to Social Security and Medicare, problems which require a bipartisan approach if they are to be resolved. Now, because of space limitations, I will set aside the Medicare part of the equation and focus the attention on the funding problems related to Social Security Reserving discussion of the Medicare funding proposal for a subsequent column. A bit of history is in order here. As established by the Social Security Act of 1935, Social Security was intended to be a mandatory savings program for retirement. The Social Security Act of 1939, however, changed that As a result of the act, Social Security became a pass-through program with the benefits for retirees funded by a tax on current workers. And of course, which is part of the FICA deduction that shows up on the pay stub of our paychecks. That's a system that still continues to be in effect today. And now turning to sports from the Sioux City Journal newspaper, headline, Crooks' tournament record 49 points leads Algana Garrington to a state title over Newell Fonda. And this high school sports story was written by sports reporter Dave Driesen. With two minutes left in the Class 1A championship game recently on Saturday night, the Algona Bishop Garrington fans erupted as Audie Crooks, converted a traditional three-point play to give the Golden Bears a 68-54 to lead over Newell Fonda. I hear a bunch of people cheering really loud, Crooks said. I said, what happened? Did I miss something? The buzzer hasn't sounded. The game's not over yet. It was only after the game that the senior learned the free-throw putter point total at 49 points, which is a record the most an Iowa girls basketball player has ever scored in a state tournament game in the five-on-five player era, regardless of class. Crook's final two points capped one of the most dominant performances in state tournament history as she led top-ranked Garrigan to its second straight basketball championship. Now, in addition to setting the single-game scoring record, she also shattered the full tournament record, racking up 117 points in her three games. The old mark was 95 by Cedar Rapids' Jefferson's Karen Schulte in 1993. The Garrington Star finished her career with 2734 points and 1339 rebounds, which ranked both third on the state of Iowa's all-time list. In college sports, in men's basketball action, Iowa State halts skid as they top number 7 Baylor. And this article was written by the Associated Press. Jaron Holmes had 16 points, and Iowa State ended a four-game losing streak on Saturday with a 73-58 win over 7th-ranked Baylor in what likely was the Bears' final Big 12 home game in the 35-year-old Ferrell Center. The Cyclones are currently 18-12, and 9-9 in the Big 12 Conference. Played their first game since the dismissal of veteran guard Caleb Grill from the team earlier this week and they built as much as a 14-point lead before halftime. Trey King finished with 13 points for the Cyclones and Gabe Kulsher had 12 points in the victory. And since we're getting into March Madness, up ahead next for the Iowa State Cyclones, they take part in the Big 12 tournament, which, uh, let's see, Iowa State plays at 1130 in the morning on Thursday March the 9th, and Iowa State will take on Baylor in their uh, first game of the tournament. And turning now back to uh, news, headline, Iowa lawmakers squash abortion proposals, but access is hanging on. And this news story was written by reporter Tom Barton of the Journal's Des Moines Bureau. Among the bills that did not survive Friday night's legislative funnel deadline were those dealing with abortion, including proposals to ban nearly all abortions and end the use of abortion pills in the state of Iowa. The bills show an eagerness by rank-and-file Republicans to ban abortion uh, following the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade in June, removing the federal right to an abortion and sending the issue back to the states. But GOP leaders have said they want to wait for now, and the outcome of an Iowa Supreme Court ruling that could clear the way to ban abortions in Iowa after six weeks into a pregnancy. As of right now, abortion remains legal in Iowa up to 20 weeks. but. Iowa's legal landscape remains unsettled when it comes to abortion restrictions. Abortion rights advocates warn that abortion access in Iowa is hanging by a thread and that GOP leaders have ways to revive legislation later in the session if they want to impose restrictions. Last week also, Walgreens announced it will not distribute abortion pills in certain states including Iowa, where Republican attorneys general have threatened legal action if the company began distributing the drugs, which have, becomes, uh, which have become the nation's most popular method for ending pregnancy. And lawmakers were successful in advancing Senate File 324, which includes portions of Governor Kim Reynolds' sweeping health care bill, including a $1.5 million increase in funding to the 55 pregnancy resource centers in the state that counsel against abortion. For now, abortion remains safe and legal in Iowa, thanks to the uproar from Iowans about the proposed abortion ban. And that is a quote from Mazie Stillwell. She is the Director of Public Affairs for Planned Parenthood Advocates of Iowa. But make no mistake, she says, this fight is far from over. Even though Republicans in the state cannot agree how or when to ban abortion, their intent to outlaw it is crystal clear. And we stand with Iowans and we are not backing down. Because people, not politicians or judges, should control their bodies. According to a recent poll conducted by the Des Moines Register and Mediacom, this poll was done this past October, and in it they found more than 60% of Iowans surveyed believe abortion should be legal in most or all cases. And the headline for this next article, Bill to Allow Carrying a Handgun Without a Permit in Nebraska Has Cleared an Initial Filibuster. This article was written by reporter Don Walton of the Lincoln Journal-Star newspaper. The legislature on Friday broke through a filibuster that had trapped a bill to allow concealed carrying of handguns in Nebraska. Following eight hours of debate, they sent it to a second-stage consideration on a vote of 36-12. to Friday's action marked a major victory for Senator Tom Brewer of Gordon, who championed the gun rights proposals. He argued the U.S.'s Constitution's Second Amendment bestows a fundamental right to keep and bear arms without government intrusion in the form of required permits, fees, and gun safety training. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, March the 8th. I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. And you can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.